Okay, we're going to begin this story. It's called The School. It's taken from Mitzurum Life, Book 3, uh, Ivy House, New Bolingbroke, 1970-1984. This story from 1984. I've just been listening to the marvellous and timeless tales from Gervaise Finn, one of which reminded me that I have not as yet recounted the story surrounding the continued existence today of the William Lovell Secondary School at Stickney in Lincolnshire. 1984 had finally arrived and by Easter we had completed our move to Northcote, a small holding property of five acres and cottage about three miles east of Spilsby, Spilsby being twelve miles and northeast of our previous home in New Bolingbroke. All thoughts of ECYB were now in the past and we were struggling to come to terms with living in a very small country cottage after 14 years and loving every minute of a true country gentleman's Georgian abode. I was now working for John H. Rundland's sons at their family agricultural engineering business as their temporary lorry driver. See tales from the crane lorry. And Ruth had changed her job. She was an agency nurse, travelling to different short-term locations within the county. She had also applied for a year-long course at Nottingham Polytechnic to train as a district nurse. Northcote was heaven for our animals, but somewhat less for us. There were mountains of muck in all the buildings, left from the previous residence, and masses of work yet to bring most of the outbuildings into a usable state. I'd been researching the possibility of farming meat rabbits, and John, Rundle's driver, who was undergoing treatment for cancer, was doing bits and pieces for me, preparing the outbuildings, when he felt up to it. While working at New Bolingbroke for 14 years, Ruth and I had taken the community to our heart. Our business had been largely based in the village and we employed local folk. I'd been a parish councillor for 10 years and a member of the Town Hall Management Committee alongside John Rundle's father Jack. Les Langstaff, the local electrician's elderly father, and Ivor Bush, the local tyre retail supremo, and of course, Harry Hubbard. Less demanding tasks were as a member of the parochial church council and governor of the local primary school and secondary school. It had been our vicar, the Reverend David Loke, who had been instrumental in my joining the governing body at William Lovell. As I've mentioned in our trout, I'd served with him for several years on the county sponsoring body for ecumenical partnership. He had managed to have me appointed as the official Anglican representative for the whole county to this group. So when a vacancy for church governor occurred at William Lovell, I was appointed as the most suitable person. Leaving the village allowed me to relinquish most of these tasks. I remained chairman of governors at the primary school until its closure as part of a total re-evaluation by the County Education Department, but William Lovell Secondary School just seemed to be something I wanted to hang on to. About the time of our move, I was elected Chairman of Governors. The serving head, Jack Died, was an old friend and encouraged me to stay. Ruth and I had sent Helen, our daughter, away to school on the advice of her primary school head, so we had not had children at William Lovell. Even so, 
I just knew that this school was something very important. Jack, during his headship and with his staff, had developed the school into the undisputed best secondary school in the whole area. Parental choice had enabled parents from a wide area to take advantage of this paragon of secondary modern education. Many readers may not realise that Lincolnshire still has a system using grammar schools and secondary modern schools. Children reaching the age of 10 had to take the selective 11 plus examination to decide their next level of schooling. Those that did not attain a passive 11 plus moved on to secondary modern education. The nearest large town to William Lovell was Boston, where there were individual grammar schools for boys and girls. There were also individual secondary modern schools for boys and girls. Despite the existence of two large secondary modern schools in Boston, several double-deck buses arrived at William, Lovell, William Lovell's rural Stickney location every day, bearing children from Boston town itself and the immediate surrounding area. These buses were paid for by the parents, who adamantly declared that education for their children had to be at William Lovell, simply because it was superior to anything else available. Stickney Village is 12 miles north of Boston, on the main A16 Trunk Road. It's a farming community, with the usual associated small businesses, and the school being the largest local employer. William Lovell is a church-endowed school. Its full title was William Lovell Church of England Secondary Modern. I think it's changed now. Like most of its contemporaries, it was built in the 1950s to breathe a new life into the national education system. Having attended the Boston Grammar School myself, and until being directly involved, I was never totally sure what secondary modern education achieved. They provide a decent, balanced education that is both classical, standard, three R's, and at the same time offers true practical opportunities for those better with their hands than their brains. This by no means excludes bright pupils from more formal education, and constant watchfulness ensures that children with more potential or who develop more quickly can move upwards from here to a grammar school or high school. The William Lovell ethos was so well established in 1984 that the 16-year-old school leavers who lit had literally queues of prospective employers waiting to offer them decent jobs. Now I've given you a fair and honest, although biased, assessment of the position of the school and reason why I was proud to be one of its governors. Storm clouds. Storm clouds were gathering on the horizon. The recent primary school closures up and down the county were the prelude to worse things to come. The County Education Department had a bee in their bonnet, largely driven by their then county councillor responsible for education. The man holding the position of Chairman of Education Committee was politically conservative and the member for the southern edge of Lincolnshire. His notoriety in 1984 for being very difficult and he had a reputation for getting what he most desired. Later in his career as a county councillor, this was to come to light as blatant corruption accompanied by undisguised bullying of all around him. At the time of writing this, he's serving a jail sentence for his real sins. 
The chairman of the County Education Committee had a mouthpiece in the form of a subcommittee. In fact, it was the task force created to arrange school closures. Once finished with primary schools, they began on the secondary education system. Their objective was to cost savings for the county budget. Good education and its simple aims and objectives were a long way from their thoughts. Over the early months of 1984, Lincoln Chaffot watched the antics of this subcommittee with amazement. Real closures of some large secondary schools began to happen, and then they arrived at Stickney. Their argument was that in the town of Spilsby, only eight miles or so north, were a grammar school and a further secondary modern school. An additional secondary modern school lay some ten miles eastward in the direction of the coast. After a series of meetings of governors and teachers of the Spilsby schools and William Lovell, the task force decided to close William Lovell and disperse the children to all the various surrounding schools nearest to their homes. In this decision we saw the real reason for the County Education Committee's attack on the William Lovell school. Its growing success was a thorn in their side. If it continued to be successful, they would have to spend more money on the site and enlarge its facilities. Parental choice was winning the day, and they were determined to destroy that parental choice by simply closing William Lovell and reducing the choice. Common sense. William Lovell School was located in the countryside, 12 miles or so from the nearest large centre of population. To planners, this did not make sense. The fact that the rural location was of great assistance to the outlook and atmosphere of the school, they could not and still do not understand. To move away into the 21st century for a moment, we see the same attitude in town planners with the same lack of understanding and their inability to look at real needs. Building of a new residential property is now restricted to locations uh, where there are existing facilities. Requests to build starter homes and low-cost properties in rural villages so that the local population can be maintained and small communities thrive without having to move to urban areas are being refused out of hand. There is another ulterior motive in their decisions. Those services they are already established in the towns where development is allowed are left to struggle and try to cope with even larger numbers of population without any redevelopment of those facilities themselves. It can be covered up in a town where facilities already exist. It cannot be covered up where facilities do not exist at all but are badly needed. The cost to provide facilities per head wherever they are needed is the same. The answer today is political and it should not be. The fight. We eventually found out that the attack on William Lovell School was political, but that will come on later. Once we at the school realised the determination of the Education Committee, we began to plan our argument. We had only a few short weeks to fight the the now proposed closure. Their main excuse was that roll numbers were projected to fall in coming years and the school would not be viable. The governing body were fortunately unanimous in their determination to fight. We had a small amount of money in the school funds and decided to spend it all on a professionally printed document. 
our presentation of the school, its achievements and its future. After all, we had nothing to lose. If we failed in our fight, there would be no William Lovell School anymore. Through our various contacts, we lobbied the County Council in general and all its councillors. We used local newspapers and television, in fact anywhere we could obtain a hearing for our powerful argument. Members of the governing body formed an action group that travelled to Lincoln and protested on the steps of County Hall. The more we investigated the excuses of the Education Subcommittee, the more we found that they had not done their homework. Their arguments could not hold water. They were trying to bully us into submission. I must mention the amazing support we obtained from my old employers of 24 years or so before. The Boston Standard, and even more so my old boss Lionel Robinson, the actual owner of the newspaper. Yes, the very man who had taken me to task all those years ago for misuse of his company vehicles. He was unstinting in his support and instructed the newspaper to give us all the help they could. Other stalwarts were the Isaac family who owned the largest department stores in the area, Aldrin Co. Bob Isaac had been my weekly contact when I worked for the Standard. His advertising was carefully planned for his company and all I had to do was carry out his wishes. We became good friends. Now his nephew was holding the reins and told the county at large that some of his best employees came from William Lovell School. He had so much respect for the school and everything it stood for that he went out of his way to tell the county council in no uncertain terms that the school should not close. Like the way of most bullies, all this had little effect on the closure subcommittee. Public support throughout the county was increasing as the battle became more involved. Other schools who had also been threatened with closure were watching us closely. The battle came to a head on an evening public meeting at the school where the task force were going to hear all our arguments. The school hall was packed to capacity, literally standing room only. The school had over 300 pupils at that time and most of the parents were there. Plus the media, all our supporters and representatives from various other schools who were under threat. On the stage were the Education Department Subcommittee and there, centre stage, the originator of our problems, the Chairman of the Education Committee. He simply repeated, by now, stale excuses for closure. By this time, I'm afraid I was becoming more than a little agitated. The committee were taking not one bit of notice of our own research. They took not the slightest notice of anything we had to say in response to their reasons for closure. Something was wrong here. Quite obviously, the decision had already been made. We were not getting a fair or democratic public hearing. All our efforts were going to be bulldozed away in a matter of moments. I stood at the back of the hall and asked the only question I could. In a voice loud enough to carry to the front of the hall, I asked the education chairman the question personally. Who pays the wages of your impartial committee, your task force? I answered immediately the question myself. You do. 
I follow this with a statement. How can we possibly expect an impartial and balanced result of the inquiry when the whole committee of inquiry depend on the county education committee for their salary? In the stunned silence, I quickly asked the second question. If this school closure programme is so important and you want it to be supposedly open and democratic, why the subcommittee not from other counties like Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire? The meeting turned into total uproar when the County Education Committee chairman launched himself off the stage, stormed down the aisles and confronted me face to face. He accused me in a loud voice in front of the whole hall of defamation of character. His character! And if I did not retract my statement, he would sue me personally. This hot problem held no qualms for me. I recently lost my business and my home. I was virtually penniless. I had nothing he could take away from me. We continued with our battle. The media were magnificent. Reports of the meeting and its upset were soon county-wide. We had struck our opponents where it hurt most, in their own backyard. Before a week was out, the headmaster, myself and our deputy chairman received an invitation to a meeting that never officially took place. We were asked to meet a small group of political leaders of the county council and we met at the local home of one of the group, all of them elected members. Finally, they asked us, what will it take to get you off our backs? I remember those words well. We told them that only their withdrawal of any closure plans for the school and its continued full and proper support by the council in the years to come would suffice. William Lovell was left to carry on its good work and into the 21st century. It continues, larger and stronger, now with larger and more modern buildings to teach those worthwhile traditions that made it so important to those supporters who were determined to see it survive and produce young citizens that employers were queuing to employ. Unfortunately, not all governing bodies were so determined, and the grammar school at Spilsby soon tumbled to the will of that despotic cardinal. Conclusion As I put this book together in 2017, William Lovell has become an academy, and from what I can gather, this gives the school more much more independence and chance to develop even further in the years to come. Thank you for listening to this story, a little bit longer than normal, brought to you by Cracker Books, written and read by Keith Sanders. We won't go into all the details of everything else, you can listen to that on all the other stories, but um, this is a little bit more different and more important. Thank you.